Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Maureen O'Connell. Maureen is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Religion and Theology at LaSalle University, and she's the author of the new book, Undoing the Knots, Five Generations of American Catholic Anti-Blackness. I think it was important to talk with Maureen because she really did some heavy work in doing a, what I would call an examination of conscience through her family's history and looking at her Irish family becoming white. And to me, at its core, when I think about what happened with her family, becoming white really meant that they lost a lot of their Irishness, a lot of the particulars around their Irish culture, Irish values were jettisoned in favor of this sort of amorphic whiteness that had its own benefits to her family. And unfortunately, within that benefit or that part of that whiteness that her family ended up being assimilated into was anti-Blackness. What does it mean to be white in the course of one's family history? What does it mean in terms of Catholicism? And how do we detangle these knots these knots of anti-Blackness, these knots of racism. And what does that look like? Is it going to be involving some discomfort? Might we even be fearful? But then what is the spiritual reason for persisting? And what spiritual assistance is there for us in undoing these knots? And how can we do this and really reject, resist sort of the spirit of fear the spirit of laziness or apathy or just not even caring or not having the same passion around issues of racial justice uh, in comparison to maybe, let's say, the same passion that white communities in the Catholic Church have around issues of life in the womb. Why is there a disconnect? One of the things also in talking with Maureen that we discovered is the fear that people have that things are going to evaporate as they know it and go away In her own experience, it wasn't a tearing down of white people, but really a recovering, a recapturing, a making whole of herself in that she was able to encounter and reclaim a lot of the Irish spiritual practices and cultural practices that had been lost in her family's becoming white. And so a part of her consciousness raising actually made her whole rather than tearing her down. So that's coming up in my conversation with Maureen O'Connell. At America Media, we're committed to hosting real conversations at the intersection of the church and the world. We do it every day, online, in print, in podcasts, in videos. And the best way to access all of that content and to support my show, The Gloria Purvis Podcast, 
is to get a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Maureen O'Connell is up next. Maureen, thank you for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. I'm very excited to talk with you. Gloria, it's really exciting to be with you. Thanks really so much for this invitation. Oh, gosh. You know, your book, the title is, it just puts it right out there, Undoing the Knots, Five Generations of American Catholic Anti-Blackness. Woo! Mm-hmm. That's, you know, a lot to sit with, really. But I understand that wasn't even the original title of the book. What was the original title? How did you come to this one? Sure. So initially, when I proposed the book and started to think about, you know, approach some publishers after I had fleshed out the idea a little bit, the title, I think, was a bit more tame. It still felt a little bit risky. And it was Being Catholic, Becoming White. Mm. And then the subcolon was the same. And I that was my intent until I really started to get into some of the archives that I dug around in family archives, but also parish archives and university archives to learn a little bit more about that interplay of my family's Catholic identity and racial identity here in the city of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And after some of the things that I discovered coinciding with some of the things that I was reading by lots of scholars in this field, and some of them very courageous white Catholic scholars, I realized that I, you know, I think the more truthful story or the the more truthful title for this story and this journey of self-discovery was really determining and discovering and owning the ways in which we we didn't just become white, although that was a process mm-hmm. that we went through in my family, but that we also became anti-Black. Mm-hmm. And I think we could talk about the we of a family unit, but that we could talk about the we of a parish, or we could talk about the we of an archdiocese, or even the we of American white Catholics. And that there were there were just different turning points and different decision points even across this history, where unfortunately the communities that my family were part of chose other than to stand in solidarity with Black Catholics, with fellow Black citizens in Philadelphia. So it just felt more honest. It feels very scary. If I'm honest, it's a, yeah. it is a scary mm-hmm. title. And But I think that I have also found that there's something a bit liberating with being that truthful. So when we talk about a lot of times and we talk in racial justice or anti-racism, the term whiteness comes up. And I know there are some listeners like, whiteness, what does that even mean? What do you mean becoming white? What is that? You know, so what do you mean when you're talking about whiteness here? I think the way I could answer that for you, Gloria, would be to say, as I was doing some of this work, I started to ask my mother and some of her siblings, well, what were the distinctively Irish things that you did in your family growing up? What were the distinctively Irish spiritual things that you did? Were there feast days? Were there particular prayers? Were there particular rituals? And my mother, whose maiden name is Gallagher, really could not put her finger on things beyond the obvious things that, you know, Irish Americans tend to do, particularly in the month of March, because in the experience of my family, in order to become white, they handed over different patterns of speech, different cultural recipes and rituals and music and stories and feast days and at-home liturgical practices in order, because their skin would allow them to become white here in the United States, in order to join this sort of 
cultureless, anonymous kind of identity. And in trading in some of those distinctive things, they picked up, they gained some things for sure that I think when we start to talk about whiteness, we could start to recognize. And some of those things are things like the ability to sort of unquestioningly belong anywhere. Mm. That me and other people who are white like me and members of my family can just kind of show up in most spaces and and our presence there is not questioned. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, that does to hear that it's really a jettisoning of the particulars of their Irishness that made them distinctive among other people, even other white people. But to trade all that in and say, you know what, all that's gone, not really of the same kind of central importance mm-hmm. to your day-to-day life as much as I'm just a white person in the United States. Oh yeah, I'm of Irish descent. Yeah, I've got Irish, you know, but I'm white. Yes. You know, and, yeah. and it doesn't make any difference if you're among other white people, whatever their ethnic descent could have been. You've all traded it in for this sort of amorphous whiteness that's understood in the United States to be the de facto yes. yeah. way of being, you know, and with it comes a lot of conferred or assumed competence. Yes. You know what I mean? Assumed yes. virtuousness. Yes. Assu- just all of these things. Yeah, that's very well said. I get it now. Yep. Yeah. I think that's very helpful. I mean, I like that you say it's sort of the de facto or the default. And so in some ways it becomes often hard for white people to become, to do the work of becoming aware of our racial identity because it's not something that we are asked to be, we're made to be aware of most of the time. Well, Maureen, it doesn't pose a problem. You like race, I would say for white people in the United States does not pose a problem mm-hmm. in the way that race for black people in the United yeah. States in its history has posed a problem. Then we have other challenges moving through mm-hmm. the world, but race is not one of them. And I think that to me, what people mean when they say white privilege, mm-hmm. although the term makes people so upset, but it was a term that's been long discussed or the idea of it rather within the black intellectual tradition. Yes. So it's not something, and also my lived experience, it's not something foreign or hard to grasp for me anyway. Yes. So even in reading the book, even in addressing the book, coming into the book, I want to make sure that the things that could be hurdles or obstacles for people, that we get to address it so that they don't come in with a chip on their shoulder mm-hmm. or thinking that you have this sort of, oh, I, you know, I hate white people type mm-hmm. of thing because it's decidedly not that in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges, and and it is a fine line, I think, for white theologians or for white scholars or for white people who are attempting to do racial justice work, the line that we need to be very careful in walking is there's important work to be done in raising the racial consciousness of white people and doing the important work of helping, helping us take important accounts of the way in which racism in this country has not just simply worked to disadvantage other people, but has really worked to advantage us. Mm-hmm. And to turn those advantages, another way of thinking about those is privileges, into advantages that can be shared, can be redistributed, can be expanded, because there are enough of them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Consciousness of raising is a term I have come across so many times in reading basically works of racial justice or works of Black women. Even I was thinking actually of the Kombai Collective and their consciousness raising where they wrote about actually identity politics. You know, this term that was actually coined by Black women as the politics of loving themselves and not being an adjunct to somebody else's movement for freedom. Mm -hmm. What does consciousness raising look like for white people? How do you go about that? 
I think for me, and something that I discovered in sort of the work of this book is to really push back against the very common phrase, and I'm sure you've heard it far often than I have, well, it's just the way things are. And that's just the way things were. Well, that was just the way things were at the time. So for me, consciousness raising is really asking the question, why? Why are things the way they are now? Why were things the way they were then? None of these things are natural givens. Mm. And so to continue to ask the why questions, to put some context on the stories that we've been handed down, to put some context on the family trees that we often are researching, you know, on Mm Ancestry.com, to put some real context on the parish histories that we celebrate, you know, at different milestones. To me, that's, it's that important why and adding some historical and economic, socioeconomic context to things, I think can help raise that consciousness. Yeah, I mean, whew. But I also think about all the discomfort that probably people might feel even going into that. And I'm thinking about even in a parish level, people in the pews going about trying to do any consciousness raising, or even if they're in a parish that's, I think your parish is one that's pretty diverse, pretty mixed race. But is that typical? I mean, how would an all white, predominantly white parish even be able to do this consciousness raising or to even think about integrating other people into the parish? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a great question. It It is very hard to do this kind of work in all white contexts. And in an archdiocese like Philadelphia, we're still a very segregated archdiocese. And mm. um, it is very unusual to have people of different cultural, ethnic, and racial backgrounds worshiping together. And even if you do, it's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy at all. So Vicentian Parish that I am a member of, St. Vincent de Paul, you know, it is an integrated parish, not necessarily by choice, but as a result of parish closures and mergers. Mm -hmm. And there's still ongoing work. It takes ongoing work to be a community where nothing happens about that community without all of the members of that community being consulted and being engaged and being incorporated. But even in, you know, very monolithic parishes, like most of the parishes until this one that I joined since returning to Philadelphia, we can be asking the question, so why does our parish look the way it does? Why does our parish make the commitments it does beyond the preservation of the parish itself? And I think even in, in discovering some of those histories about parishes, you can, we can very easily see the way that the life of the parish was entwined with the life of neighborhoods around it and the city around it. And a kind of honesty with that, I think, is a very important place to start. And yes, it does create a fair level of discomfort. But as I reflected on some of these knots that I, I'm hoping to untangle, I do think, ironically enough, it's the knot of white comfort that has kept white people really tied up and tangled up and not able to show up the way that we are called to show up by the gospel, by Catholic social teaching, by our neighbors for all of the different movements of change. Comfort is probably the biggest knot, if I'm honest. And and that has developed over several generations of voluntarily isolating ourselves in communities of similarity. Gosh, you know, I think about this, even from a spiritual sense, one of the things that one of my spiritual heroines, St. Teresa of Avila, talks about prayer and comfortable living just don't go together. Mm-hmm. And as a third order Carmelite prayer for us is one of the ways we seek to see God's face. And so to think that even in the spiritualized comfort is something that is a block. It blocks your growth and holiness. 
I could see here how comfort and wanting to remain comfortable rather than dealing with the knots of racism could create, does create a problem for communities, for white communities Mm -hmm. uh, in particular. And I am thinking if there are any specific kind of, when you think about these Catholic knots that need to be undone in terms of racism, is there anything specific that comes to mind for you? Part of what I was hoping to do with the book was to try to identify the specifically Catholic dimensions Mm -hmm. of anti-Black racism. And the way I think we perpetuate anti-Black racism is with a missionary sensibility, right? So that Mm. we are taught to see racial inequality first through a very individualized lens. So inequality and poverty must be the result of personal choices, because clearly where I have arrived at in my life is the result of my personal choices or other personal choices, people, other generations, without an awareness of all of the different support, government support, ecclesial support that previous generations in my family received. So to see racial inequality through an individual lens and blame individual people for their problems, and then to respond to that need in charity, with charity, Mm -hmm. and to feel, and there's nothing wrong with charity, but when charity is not also met, as we know from Catholic social teaching, as we know from some of the great prophets of our traditions, when it's not also met with justice, then it is its own form of oppression. It is its own form of dehumanization. That missionary sensibility, I think, if I had to name after comfort, you know, white comfort as being a big knot, I do think that's a really big knot that we get tied up in. And I do think it is something that keeps white Catholics in the United States from recognizing other responses to social inequality that we have in our own tradition that are supported by a rich tradition of Catholic social teaching, but are in the eyes of many white Catholics a bit more dangerous or risky because they actually ask us to put some skin in the game, or they ask us to Mm -hmm. follow the lead of the people closest to the pain, as opposed to coming into situations and saying, we have the answers. You know, when you talk about comfort and justice, I'm like, (laughs) those seem to be, you know, might not be quite uh, the same bedfellows, because sometimes in justice, we realize, you know what, we actually might have to relinquish something. And to me, in a lot of the pushback that I see in racial justice is when people come to recognize, ah, I might have to make room at the table. I actually might have to return something that was acquired unjustly. And that's frightening. Mm -hmm. It's frightening. It's also frightening when the narrative changes about, you know, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. And what you find out is actually, no, there was a lot of government intervention Mm -hmm. to harm some groups and Mm -hmm. for others. And it has generational impacts. And in fact, I was wondering if you would be willing to talk a little bit about racism and economics and how generational wealth factors into the history of racism Mm -hmm. in America. Yeah. I think the two places that I tried to tease that out, the idea of generational wealth was in housing and in education. One of the chapters is called Homesteading, and it is about my mother's father, so my maternal grandfather. His name was Bill Gallagher, and he was a character. And he also, in addition to raising a family of five, he was a developer and got married at St. Stephen's Parish in North Philadelphia, moved a young family a little bit further up Broad Street, but still within the city boundaries. And then in 1948, bought a couple hundred acres of land in Norristown, Pennsylvania, in Montgomery County, 
and build a subdivision. Oh, wow. And in speaking with Richard Rothstein, who's the author of The Color of Law, yes, he suggested to me, you know, you should see if you can find the ad that your grandfather would have taken out to market his, to sell you know, the properties in his subdivision, because if it had FHA funding or VA funding on it, it would have signaled that that was white only property. And so, you know, I went looking for that ad and I found some other fascinating things that I didn't expect to find there. But, you know, that was a very, a great example of wealth that my family was able to accumulate because my -hmm. grandfather built 200 homes that he could only sell to white people, ironically supported by a black lawyer in Montgomery County, right? Who he would not have been able to sell that house to because he would not have been able to get the loans for the materials or banks would have backed the mortgages for black Mm -hmm. buyers. So, you know, that is wealth that got handed down in some ways. There was some financial stability, a bit of financial stability, at least for my mother in the early part of her life, she was able to turn that financial stability into a down payment that she put down for my parents' first home. They sold that home and bought another home. They were able to build on the equity of that. I have been, you mm-hmm. know, been a beneficiary of that equity in terms of being able to go to college and graduate from college with very little debt. Huge jumpstart for me, right? Not having to carry mm-hmm. that. So, you know, it was wealth that was accumulated precisely because it was wealth denied to Black families, to Black home buyers. And I was just thinking of, since I'm out in California at the moment, I was thinking also of the example of the family, the Bruce's Beach Resort out near Manhattan Beach in California, how eminent domain was used yes. to take this family's resort yep. and their land. And they were like, can you at least give us $120,000 for it? They were like, here's $14,000, get lost. Yeah. You know? Yes. And so the family just recently got the land back. But still, what do you do now mm-hmm. when you've been almost a century, the government legally seizing your land and moving you out? How do you rebuild that? And then I was also thinking, how do you deal with the taxes on that even yeah. once you've got it back in place? So there's so many things that people, I think, haven't maybe been exposed to about how generational wealth has been built and also generational wealth stolen yes. from people, yes. you know? And it's not that long ago. It's not. That's the other thing. These things are really not that long ago. Yeah. They're not. In the history of the United States. Yep. But learning about these kinds of things and then saying, okay, I want to walk justly. Mm -hmm. I want to live in terms of be just and anti-racist, which by the way, let's talk about what that term means. Anti-racist people have, I think, assigned certain values to it Mm -hmm. that are quite negative. Wrongfully so, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. Yeah. Because to me, anti-racist is just that to not be racist, you know, intentionally not be racist. Yeah. And maybe you have a better definition, Maureen, than I do for anti-racist to help people maybe consider how to receive that term. Right. Well, I mean, I deeply appreciate the work that Ibram Kendi has done on this and really making it very basic. And it's just resisting on a personal level, resisting the messaging that we get everywhere in our culture, that there's something wrong with Black people. And just Mm -hmm. acknowledging and noticing how many times that flashes up in my white consciousness and my white interactions and the way I live my white life and naming that and trying to resist that tendency. And I do think it requires deep spiritual resources. 
I think it requires a deep tethering to wells of spiritual wisdom and spiritual practices that for white people keep us in it when we want to bop out, when we want to tap out and say, nope, I, I need a break. And so mm. for me in, in writing the book to kind of to reclaim a Celtic practice for me was really important. I did some reading in Celtic spirituality, again, to fill in the elements of my identity that got whitewashed, got emptied in the process of mm -hmm. immigration that my family experienced. And I found this great word in Gaelic, it's called a Torah or a rounding, where people, after making their confession, would go out and round some kind of holy space outside and mm -hmm. literally walk in circles, sometimes with shoes, sometimes not, and sometimes in clockwise and counterclockwise directions, in some ways trying to become undone from the binds of sin. And they might leave mm -hmm. something behind, a marker that they had been there, a button or a piece of cloth. And to know that that was a practice and to sort of intone that practice in trying to write this book and stay in the work of trying to write this book was incredibly helpful. And it was a spiritual resource. You know, that is actually, I'm, I was visualizing that whole act, um, your Gaelic ancestors, yes. or Celtic rather, your yes. Celtic ancestors. Boy, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And it's something so concrete actually mm -hmm. about not only have you done this stuff spiritually in a confessional, but now you're reminding your body. Yes that moves in the world that, hey, we are undoing yeah. what that was that affected that sin. And we're going to, yes. so that the mental, spiritual, physical, the whole self being committed to undoing this knot of evil, if you will. Right? Yes. And, oh man, that's, that's so beautiful. I love that. And I was thinking about in the book, you write about people that maybe aren't in that place where they're like, fervent in some way to do this work or committed in some way. In fact, the lukewarm, mm -hmm. maybe even the lukewarm white Catholics response to racial justice, right? Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, we know that white Catholics can be very impassioned around issues like life in the womb, right? In fact, we, we see it with the March for Life, mm -hmm. which is a good. You see the, the people just being really impassioned about it. But it does make one wonder, what is preventing white Catholics from recognizing racial justice as an issue that has a sense of moral urgency as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the million dollar question, isn't it, Gloria? <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think what I can say from my looking at this in my own family's experience, I do think that part of what I discovered is what I call a preferential option for the institutional church is something that I saw lots of different examples of at different inflection points in American history and in American Catholic history. And that church was always a white church. And that church increasingly became a white Irish church mm -hmm. as the church in the United States matured. And so I do think that that inclination part of which was spurred by anti-Catholicism at different points in American Catholic history. And, and that is real. And we know that that discrimination and violence against Catholics was very real. But I also think it was then used to justify a kind of defensive posturing that the church took mm. towards other religions, for sure, other denominations of Christianity, and certainly towards Catholics who were not white. And so I do think that that inclination for institutional self-preservation, that preferential option for the institution, is something mm. that continues to shape Catholic consciousness, particularly Catholic consciousness in the public square. So there's a way in which we know that 
not to undermine or call into question the fervor of the folks who are today, you know, in Washington for the March for Life. We also know that there is a political calculus that is done that sort of protects the power of the political power of the church when it can rally people around that single issue in that way. We'll be back in a minute. Well, I could also see how this conflation of being white is the same as being Catholic or being Catholic is the same as being white. Yes. Leaves so little room for anybody else. And even today, when we see expressions of Catholicism that are not native to or familiar to white Catholics in the United States, that it must be automatically pagan mm-hmm. or dangerous or mm-hmm. unfaithful or not reverent yes, or whatever the term is that people want to use for something that they just culturally haven't experienced, but it yes. doesn't mean it's any less Catholic, right? That's right. And coming back to your question about like, you know, why the resistance, why the reluctance or even flat out resistance among white people, you know, I think it's because in my experience, as we start to unravel some of this, we start to pull at some of these knots, the whole cloth can become undone. And there's something that's very, I think, psychologically terrifying about that, spiritually terrifying about that. It's a deep unsettling prospect. (laughs) Yeah. You know, as I'm talking with you and you say that there's this undoing of the fabric, I hear so much about right now America's being destroyed. You know, these, and they see racial justice as a part of a quote, new religion that's going to destroy America. And I'm like, what? If we already can identify that so much in terms of racial equity, racial justice Mm -hmm. is missing in this country, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't we want to build something better? Why wouldn't we want? this kind of revolution, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and I'm like, what is it that we're exactly holding on to? You know, that we just don't think that we together can make better. Mm-hmm. That's what I keep saying. What is it? Yeah, we're asking everybody to consider what we can do better. And it may mean that, yeah, some people may not retain the same kind of notion of power, mm-hmm. real or imagined, mm-hmm. that they had before. But that's only because maybe the power that has had and executed in the way it has been executed has been done unjustly. Yeah. No, I would I would agree. And just even seeing how we are, you know, the work to do racial equity work in Catholic institutions of higher ed, it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult work. It's, it's interesting you talk about diversity and equity. I mean, um, Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson out of University of Toronto just wrote this big piece of how he resigned his tenured position in response to a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And there's so much in his piece that was just shocking to me in the sense that he wrote this and published it, was that the assumption of diversity necessarily means incompetence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like, what? He was using as an example in Hollywood that when people do projects, they ask, is there anyone Black, Indigenous, person of color attached to this project? that that question in and of itself is some great disservice or harm or, un, uh, you know, injustice to white people. Just a question of basically, do we have anybody else non-white mm-hmm. involved in this? And I just thought, wow, this is, this is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's this pervasive idea that diversity means illegitimate gains for non-white people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that idea is, I would consider that a knot of racism because it is anti-Black at its core, Mm -hmm. even if people may not explicitly describe it that way. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that the church is going to have to deal with. I think that's something that if we're talking about undoing knots of racism, Mm -hmm. we have to look at the core 
things underlying these ideas or these proclamations that, you know, we have to fight and resist inclusion and diversity. And I just... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hear you. And I, I think an analogy that was helpful for me in, in sort of a spiritual analogy or a story that was helpful for me in thinking about this was thinking about the upper room and the disciples mm-hmm. in the upper room, right? You know, after the crucifixion, knowing that they had witnessed something horrific, they couldn't really make sense of it. They were very fearful and they kind of locked themselves in there. And it took Jesus passing through the door a couple of times and inviting them to probe wounds for them to actually start to begin to understand what had happened, Mm. understand their role in it, understand that that wasn't the defining moment for them, move to Pentecost. But in the middle of that time, they're all stuck in this closed room. And the Pope has this really great line in one of his books about mercy, where he says, like, when people are stuck in a closed room together and they've locked the world out and they're stuck in a room of sameness, they are not healthy. They will not be well. They need the doors to be open. They need the breeze to blow through. They need to move out of that self-isolating sort of space. Our ability to imagine communities beyond the communities that are familiar to us is is a capacity Mm -hmm. that has been debilitated by generations of, of race and sameness. Our ability to sort of move past places of guilt into a kind of responsibility All of these affective wounds are certainly impacting us individually and collectively. And we know that that is Mm -hmm. then perpetuating harm, continuing to perpetuate harm on others. So certainly not trying to equivocate between those wounds, but I do think it's important. And part of what I try to do in the book is to say, yeah, like there were losses. There were significant losses as a result of choices that folks in my family and the Catholic communities that they belong to made, and they had implications for us. And maybe we could actually live in a city that is a truly a Philadelphia, yeah, a city of brotherly love. You know, I think that's so rich that actually you're, you live in Philadelphia and you wrote this book, Undoing the Knots, Five Generations of American Catholic Anti-Blackness. You know, really, to me, I, I hope that it's something that encourages people and they have some hope in it that there is, you know, where you identify these things going through your family's history mm-hmm. and, you know, how people realize that, that there is a way to undo these knots. Mm -hmm. And so thank you so much. We are going to put the link to your book in our show notes. Thank you. I'm wondering if there's any one last thing you want to say to our listeners at all before we wrap the episode. I think I would just say, get curious about the context of your family trees and, and our family histories, because in forgetting and choosing to forget some of those histories or not remember them completely, we're also forgetting a lot of acts of courage and a lot of of remarkable people that our people interacted with and engaged with. We lose everything, the good and the bad, mm. when we don't remember fully, when we don't remember with context, when we don't round, right? Make those roundings and try to Yes. to really understand who we are and where we've been. Great. Thank you so much. This has been a very enriching conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Gloria. It was great. And I applaud you with the work that you're doing. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you. It takes a lot of courage. Lots of courage. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. It's good to be in the struggle with you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. I would love it if you could leave us a review. Hearing from you is very important to me 
And guess what? You can also follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time. <laughs>